and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us just a little deeper behind the pages of the best of the food books. This week, I'm with Alyssa Timoshkina, whose book Salt and Time takes us into the Russian kitchens of her childhood, but also prods at many of the universal questions about food, identity and being a woman. A lot of women in my family, I wouldn't say they had an eating disorder, but, you know, there was a lot of unease around food at the same time as there was so much joy and so much passion and so much talent for cooking yet it was you know had a shadow side of constantly being aware of putting on weight and there was a kind of a tinge and um, you know flavor of guilt that was flying around in the kitchen as well. As she takes me through her four food moments we meet the Jewish Siberian matriarchs her mother grandmother and great-grandmother whose food has literally shaped her and her own journey into motherhood. I asked her how much of an influence the matriarchs had had on her extraordinary career running online cookery courses, a podcast called Motherhood, her own supper clubs, and of course, writing the book Sultan Time. I never thought about it that way. And actually, I think perhaps I'm, I tend to do a bit too much sometimes and push myself a little bit too much. And um, that probably comes more as a result of having grown up around women who never had a very fulfilling career. And especially my mom, it has always been a bit of a sore kind of subject for her that she's never had a career and has always been a housewife. So it's almost like I'm trying to prove something. It's interesting, isn't it, that we do that. We, you know, I had, this, I had a super, super brainy, really energetic mother as well. But she was of that generation where she was a housewife. Such a, a waste in many ways of, of energy. And I'm sure that I'm, I'm living the life that she would have wanted to lead by doing so much. I mean, do you feel that you're kind of taking on the, the mantle for these incredible women in your life? Yes, I was about to say, I almost feel like I'm doing it for the women, not just for myself, but for the women in my family and I guess for women in general, because we still have so much work to do and so much to say and show that I always feel, yeah, when I'm doing this work, it's almost not just for myself. And um, I also feel the same about seeing other women who have a very inspiring and um, kind of multifaceted life that they are doing that to inspire me. You write a lot about identity. You write about Jewish women. You write about Siberian women and you say that they are doers. I wonder how much when you're talking about women, it is to do with the women from where you come from. Tell me a little bit about Siberian women. Well, I think there's a a broader kind of stereotype of Russian women, or maybe not a stereotype, just the kind of um, identity image of Russian women has been extremely strong, um, both within Russia and from the outside. And there's a really famous um, expression, or it's part of a poem about women, where it says a Russian woman can stop a running horse and walk into a burning hut. Um, which is fascinating that, you know, is a, like, you know, it's almost a mythical kind of image of where a woman doing all of that stuff. But yet at the same time, there's a lot of misogyny and quite kind of deeply rooted misogyny in Russian society and mentality. And, you know, people really still do perceive each other very strongly based on gender roles. You know, women are often are considered kind of a second best to a man. 
Yet in daily life, yeah, women are incredible, especially back in the Soviet days when women had to work. You know, there wasn't really an option of just being a housewife. Yet they also had to raise a family, um, you know, pursue their own creative interests, intellectual interests. So, uh, yeah, the phenomenon of Soviets and Russian women really fascinates me. And I think if we go deeper into Siberian um, theme, then just purely because of the uh, climate and the cold, that kind of strength and resilience is ramped up even more <laughs> for Siberian women. Yeah. And you talk very much about space. And uh, I mean, the book is called Salt and Time. The beautiful photograph on the front cover is about space. It's empty. I mean, obviously, we're talking about women whose lives were very full. You talk about the home, but actually it's filled with people and these women are having to, to look after them. But you write about space and the space of the kitchen as a space of comfort, of creativity and of empowerment. Is that just your generation, do you think? Is that having left it? Um, or are you referring to your, your kitchen now and your space that you've carved out of your own? It's definitely something that came to me only recently, kind of going on about uh, my relationship to women in, in Russia and, you know, kind of the concept of women in Russia and women in my own family. It took a lot of um, reinvestigation and really kind of deep inquiry into that sense of identity and what, where do I stand as an individual and as a woman from Russia. And kitchen, of course, is such a strong kind of symbolic space that I mean, we all connect to it. I mean, I, I'm sure many people have very strong memories that are rooted in the kitchen. Um, and it brings so much sense of comfort and joy and warmth. Um, yet so many women feel trapped in that space because they just have to be there and they have to cook. Um, so women in my family, you know, they I can't say that they ever kind of had that moment of critical distance and you know, interest to evaluate their role and their space. So I feel like I'm the first one in my family to do that. And maybe having the benefits and the luxury of living away from home um, and studying intellectually, studying Russian history and culture, uh, this is something that I'm able to see a little bit better than the previous generation in my family. And it really has been a deliberate kind of statement to, which first I didn't see as that, I just followed my passion for cooking. But recently, I've really thought about it. And I realized that it's a, it's a really big statement for me to take that same space, but turn it into a place of not just kind of family comfort and childhood joy, but a place of real creativity and a place where kind of came to be myself as an adult. Yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, one of the, the reasons that you poke at this a little bit more than most, perhaps, is not necessarily to do with your Siberian identity. It's to do with your relationship with food. And you, too, write a lot and you talk a lot on your podcast about having overcome an eating disorder. Um, it's it's something that is much more nuanced about femininity. It's much more, it's it's more universal as well than, than coming from a particular place. Tell us about growing up with an eating disorder and how you managed to reclaim food for yourself and and become a food writer. Gosh, yeah, it's quite an intertwined, you know, experience. Um, 
I again very hard to say kind of at which point I became aware of it. Um, but definitely recently, mostly because I became a mother to a girl, um, and you know suddenly the importance of food and what what kind of a role model I am for my own child became of you know absolutely paramount, and that made me reevaluate um, my own childhood growing up. And in no way this is a you know criticism of the women in my family. It's more a statement about the society and the role you know, the unrealistic role that women are supposed to perform, and especially in terms of their look, um, that a lot of women in my family, I wouldn't say they had an eating disorder, but, you know, there was a lot of unease around food at the same time as there was so much joy and so much passion and so much talent for cooking, yet it was, you know, it had a shadow side of constantly being aware of putting on weight and there was a kind of a tinge and, um, you know, flavor of guilt that was flying around in the kitchen as well. And that's something that I internalized without actually realizing at all until my early 20s, um, when I was already living here, um, which obviously made, made it in a way easier to stop eating because there was no one to look after me and there was no one to, you know, just be aware of what's happening um, so it's been, it's been a process that w was pretty bad for a few years. And, um, I think due to just kind of change of social circumstances, having a more, um, kind of engaged social life, um, what, after I finished university, um, I started, you know, eating more or just kind of eating again. Um, and interestingly from having experienced that, um, you know, when you realize what lack of food can do to your body and your mental state, you suddenly realize that food is life. You literally need to eat to stay alive. And that new appreciation just took me on this new journey of really delving into what beauty food has to offer, just aside of pure, you know, sustenance and fuel for life. It's interesting because I talk to a lot of people who come to the UK to go to university and it's at that point that they realise that there's some kind of ache in their soul, there's something missing and they talk to their parents, their mothers in particular or their grandmothers and and food comes up and they start to cook their way back to fill that ache in their soul. You know, you know, you know, Olia Hercules, she's a friend of yours. And that's one of her stories and many, many, many other people who I've talked to. And I find that absolutely fascinating. It's so interesting that you leave home, you go to university and you begin to starve yourself. Um, I wonder what relationship you had to the food of your childhood when you went through this rupture that everybody else also talks about that they then address by feeding themselves the food from home. That's interesting. I never thought of it that way. Um, I think partly for me, this experience happened to take place when I was at university, partly for practical reasons, because I was living in halls of residence and there was no option to cook for myself. And actually another part of how I started to heal myself and make my way towards a really holistic and joyful relationship to food was moving into a flat that had a kitchen. So there was a lot of kind of practical um, element to that. And also, I think um, 
I mean, you know, leaving home is traumatic. Um, I mean, moving home with them in the middle of doing it now is quite a disturbing process. But when you're very young and leaving home, especially going to a foreign country, um, it is a trauma in a way. Um, and I think that was kind of my way of dealing with it as well. So definitely a very complex, um, you know, experience that had so many factors into it. But I'm actually really grateful for having gone through it. Um, not only because I can relate to so many other women who have gone through it and become aware again of how food um, plays such a huge part in our identity as women. It almost can be used as a, almost kind of a social political weapon against women. Um, but also that it held so much kind of inherent power to heal ourselves. And yes, to me, that was probably the most empowering experience of realizing that it's literally in my hands to nourish myself and to, you know, sustain myself and make myself well again. The control is yours, absolutely. Did you phone your mother? Did you have lots of Skype calls with your with your mother to to learn about the food from home when you did move into your own flat? Um, absolutely. I mean, even before then, when I lived in a boarding school, uh, I remember having a few evenings when we would uh, cook food. It was an international boarding school, um, and uh, girls from different countries would cook their own food. Um, so I would phone my mom then and asking for recipes. And I remember those calls very fondly. And especially when I started working on the um, cookbook, we have a WhatsApp, special WhatsApp uh, group <laughs> just for recipes. Um, so there was a lot of recipe testing and exchanging pictures and calls. Yeah. And did it feel different when you were talking about the food from home? Did home feel different? Did you feel that you were bringing two halves of a, an Alyssa together when you were talking about the food that had made you who you were as you were growing up? Absolutely. It's, um, it's been such an amazing experience and it really does make me wonder about timing um, because when I started working on the cookbook, I found myself pregnant, which was completely unplanned. And if you ask me then, that felt like literally the worst possible timing. Yet now I realize that it couldn't have been a better timing <laughs> ever. Um, because in reconnecting to the food of my home, I almost prepared myself for becoming a mother and reconnecting to my mom and my you know, other women in my family through their recipes. It's been nothing short of magical, really. I mean, it, it, it seems like that reading, reading the book and listening to your podcast, um, Motherhood. It, it, it does feel like that. Take us through um, your four food moments. Let's start with the borscht, um, which you say it's, it's a meal that symbolizes all the generations in your family and marries the different origins of the family. Lots of people write about uh, borscht. It has many, many different uh, discourses and many people claim them as their own from across the area that you, you, that you come from. Tell me about your borscht. Well, I love borscht precisely for that reason. It's such a amazing meal, a dish that kind of marries so many different um, countries from Eastern Europe. But at the same time, it's like the main reason for arguing. And it brings up such fascinating questions of identity. Again, what role food plays? It's a bit like hummus in the Middle East. Um, so from kind of a cultural food historian's perspective, it really fascinates me. But also in my family, um, 
I just can trace so many beautiful food memories um, connected to my family through that plate of borscht. Um, starting with my great grandmother, who was um, Jewish Ukrainian, so she kind of holds the authentic <laughs> uh, kind of medal for borscht in my family, um, and then her recipe, which was quite um, traditional, quite um, wintry in a way, that it used lard and lots of uh, fried um, vegetables and quite rich stock. Um, Finally enough, my mom always found it a bit too heavy, so she always um, made it much lighter, and she has the most beautiful kind of spring version where she doesn't actually fry anything. She makes a very light beef uh, stock and then just uses fresh vegetables straight into it, and I, and I love that one as well. So it's a perfect kind of um, season. It just shows you how versatile um, borscht is. And also it's quite fun to, you know, you can tell a lot about a person by kind of the way they eat an apple, sometimes they say. Um, but in my family, I love kind of observing how different members of the family eat their borscht. And my grandfather, he always uh, would have it with a whole clove of garlic. So he would bite into a clove of garlic and then bite into a rye bread and then eat the, the broth. Um, and um, to me, this is probably the most powerful memory. Even though as a child, it really annoyed me because the smell of garlic was quite intense. But uh, when my grandfather passed away about 15 years ago, um, to me, this was the most potent and kind of alive image of him. And until now, when I think of him, I see him at the dinner table biting into that clove of garlic. Wonderful image. Your, your second food moment is... Bigos, um, fermented vegetables. Now, obviously, you know, fermentation is everywhere. We're supposed to be eating a little bit of something fermented every single day. Uh, it's absolutely 100% part of Russian cuisine, isn't it? Yes, it's one of the oldest um, techniques um, that has been sustained virtually unchanged for centuries. And that's something that um, I was looking into when I was writing my book, um, then, you know, again, there's so much debate about the origins of Russian food and, you know, and what is authentic food. Um, but pretty much everyone agrees that fermented food is definitely one of, if not the most powerful um, kind of style of cooking that is very emblematic of Russian cuisine. So that's kind of where I started my um, research into the book and hence the name Salt in Time because it's such a magical um, thing fermentation that you essentially cook with nothing but salt and thyme and then it's the thyme that does all this wonderful transformations to your cabbage tomatoes or whatever else that you're fermenting interesting i mean we know that you know russia is bordered by lots of different cultures it's the most extraordinary area we kind of forget that it is also bordered by asia and that some of the cuisines are very much uh, influenced by, by Asian flavours. Your third food moment is a fern and beef stir fry. I love this because it's Asian, but also I love the idea of cooking with ferns. Tell us about this one. Yeah, this one is a crazy one. It was really funny because um, when I was thinking of some authentic dishes that I remember from my childhood and someone was asking me, what do you guys eat in Siberia? And I said, well, one of the things that I loved as a kid was fern. And there was a big pause and like, what, you mean the plant and I'm sure people had this image of us crazy Siberians going out in the wood and just biting on you know, bushes of fern but um, that's not the one that I mean in my book it's um, 
It's actually, it is a type of fern that we all know, but it only is taken in its very young form when it's still a stem. And there are certain types um, that are edible. You can find some here in the UK, actually, there's some in Canada. But the one that I mean, it's more indigenous to uh, the Russian Far East and um, East Asia, so China and Japan, um, Korea. Um, so that's the one that I know. And my family, it's also a dish that represents um, kind of Siberia as a melting pot of cultures and of different regions through my own family because my dad's family comes from the Far East. He's from a city called Khabarovsk, which is literally on the border with China. And back in the Soviet days, when there wasn't much food, kind of circulation, wide food, import, export uh, going on, uh, people who lived on the border with certain countries obviously had a lot more access to the food of that country, which was the case with my grandmother, who had access to soy sauce and brined ferns. Um, these days, they're available widely throughout Russia in all markets and supermarkets. But back then, it was a real treat that she would send us. And she would always send us a big bundle of food before the New Year's um, festivities. So again, this is a very wintry dish that I always remember fondly. And it's absolutely delicious, cooked with soy sauce and beef um, and pretty much nothing else. And then we would have it with mashed potatoes to kind of remind us of our um, Russian, Eastern European origins as well. And was it the conversations, again, talking about that rupture, when you come from one place, you go to somewhere completely different and you find yourself talking about your identity often through your food was it when you were talking about uh that asian influence that you realized how diverse your family actually was and particularly how different it was from our perception of what russian food is absolutely it started in a way it's just an innocent collection of recipes without having any conceptual framework around it but as i was working on the book even during the book shoots you know, people working with me went, oh, that's interesting. I never thought that would be a Russian food. And the more I spoke to people and the more feedback I got on the book, I realized that it's actually one of the things that really fascinated people about the book, that Russia spans your perception of Eastern European food and is often wrongly pigeonholed into this category. You know, only a very small percentage of Russia territorially is within Europe and the rest of it is Asian. And it borders such countries as Kazakhstan and China and Mongolia. So, I mean, it's Central Asian and East Asian food is as natural and as kind of authentic. I always use that word in inverted commas as, um, you know, Eastern European food, which we more often associate with Russia. Yeah, absolutely. It's a wonderful way, isn't it, of discovering what the world is actually made up of. You know, it it, it opens a, a window onto all these different cultures through its food. It's always fascinating. And, and, and in fact, your fourth food moment, the Napoleon cake, is about the French origins of Russian cuisine. Yes, I love that dish so much. And again, as a former historian, or I guess it can never be a former historian, as a historian at heart, um, that is another fascinating thing about Russian cuisine. And that's something that people don't often remember. Um, and I think it's so important to do that uh, precisely because it helps us to kind of stay in touch with what's happening and where we come from, you know, especially in Russia in the recent years, as we all know, there's a bit of a 
mild cold war going on with Europe and people are very anti-European in so many ways. So working on this book, I was actually laughing to myself, realizing how many traditional Soviet dishes have their roots in French cuisine. Um, some also have their roots in um, North American cuisine, like burgers and things. So, you know, it's just fascinating. Once you start learning, it actually makes you a lot more humble and a lot more respectful towards, you know, yourselves and others around you. So the Napoleon cake is a really fascinating example of that. Um, it's a relative of the famous Millefeuille cake, Uh, which was created to celebrate the centenary of the um, victory over the Napoleonic army in Russia. And funnily enough, the cake was created in 1912, and that was the year that my great-grandmother was born. And she in my family was the master of that cake. Um, she was actually a trained uh, patisserie chef, um, so she really did know her stuff when it came to all the sweet bakes and cakes and delightful things like that. And um, this cake, again, it's a really iconic dish that everyone who grew up in the former Soviet territory would be familiar with. And it's always made uh, for some kind of a special occasion, like a birthday, um, and especially the New Year's Eve, which is the big deal in Russian culture. And um, I've never made it before until I had to test it for the book. So I only know it as kind of as a consumer, as almost a child who always sits around the kitchen and absorbs the delicious smells of uh, vanilla and butter. Um, so again, it was absolutely magical when I started cooking that um, cake, making that cake uh, myself. And it was almost this kind of out of the body experience where I was at once the parent and the child um, making that. And again, reminded me of, the power of food, you know, almost mystical power of food to bring back people who are no longer there because that scent of vanilla custard is forever associated with my great-grandmother. So it was so special to have that recipe in the book. Also because, as I said, I was pregnant working on the book and and I already knew when I knew that I was having a girl that I'd like to call her um, after my great-grandmother Um, so the picture in the book where you can already see I have a little bump with my little girl in there holding the Napoleon cake is just the most powerful image about womanhood and food for me because it encapsulates the women in my family that are gone already and the women in my family that are about to be born. And you called your daughter after your great-grandmother? Yes. That's a lovely idea. Your Cooking and your cookbook were included in the list of food trends for 2021 by Waitrose magazine. Is that because we're constantly looking for new ways of cooking, new cuisines, new stories about food? Or is it something perhaps a little bit more rooted that we're trying to find our own identity through our foods from way back? That's a wonderful question. And I think it's a little bit of both. There's definitely... A lot of excitement around food in the UK in general and there's um, there are trends and there's a lot of appetite for trends um, and something new is obviously always very exciting precisely because you think it's gonna you know take you out there somewhere and show you something entirely new but I think in a almost kind of paradoxical way it actually is gonna more, more, more likely gonna bring you back 
towards yourself and towards your own roots. As you know, from my brief experience um, f- so far in food, um, you know, compared to other amazing guests you've had on the show, I'm already discovering that the deeper you go into any cuisine, you are bound to find, you know, a handful of things, whether ingredients or cooking methods or just the kind of general emotional aspect of food that we all share, no matter what part of the world we come from, no matter what climate and, you know, what kind of spices we use. Um, so I think in a way, it kind of a, is a fascinating marriage of both. While it seems that we're kind of chasing something new, in a way, it's a, actually a return to something closer to us. Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my supper club news. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week when I'm truffle hunting with James Beard Award winner Rowan Jacobson. Bye.